Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are the God who has revealed yourself through all of creation, but you have also revealed yourself through your word that we might be able to know more about who you are, the glorious truth of your character and your essential properties of who you are. Lord, we pray that we would seek to be able to love your word, that we would find our hiding place, and you would be our shield, that we would put our hope not in the world, but in the word, that we would be able to seek to be able to know the glorious truths which you have shown to us in your word. Uphold us according to your promise that we might live, that we would be not put to shame in the hope in which we have in you. We pray in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 3, verses 15 to uh, 22. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you. And what has been done to you in Egypt? And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jesuits, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flowers fade, for the word of our Lord will stand we all know the scene in the movie we know it so well because we've seen this hundreds of times it doesn't matter what movie we think about there's always a movie that will come to mind because this happens frequently the the scene sets place in the headquarters the diner the the sideline some other meeting place The movie has built up to this scene that is about to come. 
They need to capture the bad guy. They need to defeat the enemy. They need to score a touchdown. They need to find that long-lost person, child, or dog, or some other thing. They've spent this whole movie building up to this final scene of this final pinnacle moment where the conflict is resolved. That final battle, the last leg, the last shot before the timer runs out. And they sit down and they spell out their plan. Sometimes we get to know their plan in great detail. Other times music starts to play and the scene pans out. Everything balances on this final plan. Everyone has to be in the right spot at the right time. If one aspect of this plan fails, then the whole movie would have been a bust. Impossibly possible. I pan to one of the actors who comments that this is either the most foolish plan they've ever heard or the most genius plan they've ever heard. Scene ends with someone saying something along the heartfelt words of, if I don't see you again, or it's been great knowing you. And the scene fades, and the actual scene that the movie is built upon takes place. We see the plan fail or succeed. The ultimate end in most movies, as we tell our children, it's going to end good, well. We don't have many tragedies in movies. In some cases, it does seem that the plan fails. But that was the plan all along. But today, we, find, we get to see the plan that God has. We get to see the plan of how God is going to deliver His people. Not in intricate details. But all of the other chapters that follow all come down to what is revealed in this passage that we just read. How God is going to rescue and redeem His people. But more important than that, we learn about who God is. These great and glorious truths that we get to learn about this God who has revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush. The first part of the plan we see is going to the elders. Going to the elders. Moses stands barefoot before this burning bush that is not consumed. His face is covered. The Lord has spoken to him and revealed to him his name, the covenant name of Yahweh. And the Lord tells Moses exactly what is going to happen. He spells out his mission, his plan more clearly. Moses is sent to be able to go, to be able to gather the elders of Israel and tell them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. Now again, before we move on to the actual plan, we, we get some encouraging aspects of what we see even in these early chapters of the book of Exodus. The glorious promise that God is telling of what he will do. First thing that we see in this passage is that the nation of Israel still retains its national identity. Even while they're living in the land of Egypt. Under the king of Egypt. Here they still have a council of elders. Now I don't want to get hung up on this point, but I think it is worth pointing out that throughout all of Israel's history, 
we see the structure of how the people of God structure themselves. They have elders over tribes. And right from even these early stages of the nation of Israel's history up till Jesus' death, we see they have elders who oversee the people of God over the tribes of Israel. We see even a number which is consistent, maybe not consistently throughout all that period of time, but even that number of 70. We see that even here in the book of Exodus. That are 70 elders that are called together, and then in Jesus' time, that's known as the Sanhedrin. Doesn't mean it's always consistent through the nation of Israel's time. But you see that principle ingrained in the people of God. So once they start setting up churches, what model do they start to follow? You can understand why then they would use terminology like elders, why they would have elders overseeing churches. But I think the other encouraging thing here you see is not only do they retain their national leadership, whatever that might look like, but you also see that they're still connected to the God of their fathers. Just like Aram and Jochbed, who are Moses' parents, taught Moses about who this God is, so it seems that the nation of Israel still knows of the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the whole nation still worshipped in some way the living God. We saw this even when they cried out to God at the end of chapter 2. They cried out to the God of their fathers. And the God of their fathers has responded. But Moses is told to be able to, with these instructions from God, that he is to go and speak to Pharaoh. But first he was, going, he was sent to be able to go speak to the elders of Israel. And then they would all go and speak to Pharaoh. In verse 16, the Lord tells Moses that he have observed the people of God's affliction. Again, this seems like a, quite a sterile word. You observe something, you observe it from a distance. You observe it through a pane of, of glass. But maybe a better translation, but even still a distant translation, is the Lord has visited his people, inspecting their afflictions. This is what's told to the people, the exact same Hebrew word, in Exodus chapter 4. And the people believed when they heard, heard, the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshipped. Again, this is evidence that the people of God had not departed from God's word, although they're living in amongst the world. This is the exact promise that the brothers of Joseph had made to Joseph on his deathbed. Joseph told his brothers that I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from there. Here, here Joseph is speaking of the Exodus, and he speaks of the Exodus as God visiting his people. And here the, Moses has told the elders that God has visited you. 
He has seen your affliction. But the promise that's connected to that is God not only comes down to visit, but God will bring them up out. And this story would have been passed down from generation to generation. The king of Egypt might have forgotten who Joseph was, but not the people of God. The first step in this plan was Moses was to go speak to the elders of Israel. To tell him who sent him. Tell them that Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, had appeared to him. To speak to them. And the last thing that he was told to be able to tell the elders of Israel was that the God will bring them up out of the affliction of Egypt the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jesubites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They had made a vow, the sons of Israel had made a vow to Joseph, saying that they would carry his bones out of Egypt. But now it is God who is making a promise to the people of God, the sons of Israel. Not merely just to save them from their affliction, but to bring them into the promised land that God had told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God tells him how this plan is going to work. He tells Moses that this plan, as he speaks to the elders, they will listen. Now that's important to understand because the beginning of chapter 4 Moses begins with another question to God. What if they don't listen? We'll see more of that next time. The second part of the plan was to, the first part was to go to the elders. The second part was to go to Pharaoh. The second part was to go to Pharaoh. Now often in in the time of Exodus, in in the book of Exodus, he's called the king of Egypt. Again, he's sent to be able to go, and this message is quite simple. He's sent bearing God's name, that God has visited his people, and they ask a simple request to go into the wilderness for three days' journey that they might be able to worship the Lord their God with sacrifices. Now, again, this might seem like a simple request. But we'll see this is the fundamental essence of what God is asking Pharaoh to be able to do. We often think that Pharaoh always says no to Moses. Well, the truth is, as you read through Exodus, Pharaoh does not always say no to Moses, but he says, yes, you can go. Yes, you can go, but just leave the kids behind. Yes, you can go, just don't take any sacrifices with you. This specific request here is fundamental to what Moses continually asks Pharaoh to do, but Pharaoh tries to alter it, to change it. He limits them who can go, what they can take. But this is the simple request. The heart of what God is seeking his people to be able to do, not merely just to bring them out of slavery, but bring them out that they might be able to worship him. As God says on the mountain that I am the God who has brought you out of the land 
of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall serve me and me alone. Even remember what God had just promised to Moses moments before this conversation here. That Moses will know this has happened because the sign God was going to show him that they, the people of God, will serve God on this mountain in which he stands. That the people of God, the plan is not merely to save the people, but to save the people that they would be worshipers. Saved, called out to bow down before their Savior. And we have the truth and the promises that God has visited His people and He will bring them out of Egypt into the promised land in which they would worship Him. God had told Moses that the people of God, the elders of Israel, would listen to Him. However, this is not the case with Pharaoh. Isaiah, as he's sent out, to go to the people, whom shall I send? Isaiah says, me, me, me. And he says, you're going to go to the people. They're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're not going to see or perceive. And Moses is told the exact same thing, that he's going to go to Pharaoh, and he's not going to listen to God at first. He's not going to listen to Moses' words until he is compelled by powerful hands. We see more of this in chapter 6 and then in the following chapters. But now we need to note that even before Moses returns to Egypt, God already knows it's not going to be a swift response from Pharaoh. That God will use his might and his power to be able to free the Israelites. God is going to go to great lengths to be able to save his people from Pharaoh's oppressive hand. In verse 20, God tells Moses that he will be the one to be able to save his people with an outstretched arm. He will strike the Egyptians. Moses struck an Egyptian for, and killed him. But this time it is God who is going to strike them. He's going to strike them with pestilence. He's going to strike them with hail. And finally he will strike the firstborn. Now just on a a brief note, maybe a little bit of a, a soapbox for me. We often call these the ten plagues. And you might get sick of me repeating this, but I do not like to call them the ten plagues. Mainly because the Bible already gives them a term. And that term is, they, they're called the signs and wonders. And I think plagues often focuses on the effect the causes on creation. But signs and wonders seeks to focus on the origin of these great signs and wonders. A plague has a recipient. A sign has a performer. A wonder has an actor, not in, in, a, in a sense of Hollywood acting, but someone who initiates, someone who acts. Plagues focuses on the natural. The signs and wonders focuses on the supernatural. And the focus is on chapters 5 to 13 is the fact of God is the one who is saving and redeeming his people. God is the one who is reaching out with his outstretched arm 
God is the one who is going to redeem. God is the one who is going to change Pharaoh's stubborn heart. In all of this, the Lord is mentioning all of this to Moses. He keeps on showing us what this great blessing Exodus will be. And in some way, it's, it's like a late-night commercial. But wait, there's more. But unlike the commercial, which promises merely just steak knives or some additional thing, mainly trying to, to get you to purchase in a limited time for this offer before it runs out, before the 50 callers call in, The Lord is not doing it as a salesman. He's doing it as the covenant-keeping, gracious, merciful God. He tells Moses that not only he will redeem them from the oppression, not only he will bring them out of this land, not only he will bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, but he tells as they leave, they're going to get given these great and glorious gifts. That here the Egyptians, who once oppressed them, will show them favor. That they will not leave Egypt empty. This is exactly what God had promised to Abraham. But I will bring judgment upon the nation in which they serve, these great signs and wonders. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. We see that not only God will redeem his people, not only he will bring them out to be able to worship him, but he will bless them abundantly. He will judge the Egyptians for how they have treated his people. The last thing that we see in this passage overall is just going to the ends of the earth. Before... Moses has even left this place in which this burning bush is not consumed. We have a great list of things that drives us to be able to want to read and continue to read as we eagerly anticipate what will happen in these coming chapters. How will this plan work out? Will God be able to save his people? Will Pharaoh really let the people of Israel go? Will they really leave this nation in which they have been slaves for hundreds of years with great possessions? Will they even make it to this promised land? But even in this small little passage, we see these great and glorious things of what God is able and willing to do. Here's seven, quickly. First is the plan and the promise. We pointed this out from the start. That we've seen in the book of Genesis, these promises that have been made that God is is going to make to the people of God. When he called Abraham out, he had told him that this was going to happen. But again, we see God has a plan that he has made his promise to his people. We see these glorious truths throughout all of the whole counsel of God with these promises where God says, I will. Not I might, not I can, but depending on how you act, I will. 
these promises laced throughout Scripture in Exodus. In chapter 3, it's no different. He explains exactly what is going to happen in the next chapters. That he is the one who's going to bring them out. He is the one who's going to cause all these things to happen. Pharaoh is not going to listen to you, Moses, but he will listen to me. Those don't stop in Exodus. The promises in the New Testament pick up as they're our promises as well. The second thing that we see is providence. We not only see that God has a plan. To have a plan is one thing. To be able to carry out that plan and to be able to cause the effects of that plan to be able to be how you planned it to be, that is quite an accomplishment. I forever had plans. Then you have three kids and those plans go out the window. I forever have plans and and dreams of what I envisage things to be able to do, but that does not mean that I can cause them to be effective. But here, it's not only God's plan to be able to, and promise, but he has the providence to be able to do that. The Hardenberg Catechism in question 27 says that things come not by chance, but everything comes from God's fatherly hand. And the next question asks, what does it benefit us? to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence. That we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. We can be patient when we go through those trials because God has a plan and a purpose, providence to be able to carry it out. We can be thankful in prosperity because God has a plan and a purpose, providence to be able to catch, uh, work that out. Not only we see the providence, we also see the third thing, a power. Not only the, the plan to be able to carry it out, the providence to be able to see it through, but the power to be able to make things happen. We see God's power and his might. He is willing to go head to head with Pharaoh to be able to redeem his people from this oppression that they have faced. God will go to great lengths, showing great signs and great wonders. In the end, the Pharaoh who says, who is this Lord that I should listen to him? You will finally say, and know of this Lord. The covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, of the Israelites. The next thing is God's persistent. Pharaoh is quite stubborn. But in one way, you might say that he's not as stubborn as the Lord. Now, Pharaoh's stubbornness is rooted in his pride and his sin. However, God's stubbornness is found in his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his people. He will not give up, but he will continue to show his power to Pharaoh until he lets his people go. Not only does he show his persistence with Pharaoh, but also even with the people of God. It's not long after. They're in the wilderness, and they start to complain. Oh, wouldn't it be better to be back in Egypt? 
But yet God's persistence, his love for his people endures until the end. The next thing is his purpose. God's not merely just saving them to be able to get them from the, away from this, his oppression, this present oppression from Pharaoh. He brings them out to be able to be servants of him. That they would be holy people who serve and obey the one true living God. He is saving them to serve. They go from working for Pharaoh to worshiping the Lord. The next is his provision. God's plan includes a great blessing upon his people. They will receive a great inheritance from their God, not only the promised land, which is going to be theirs, but also these possessions. They walk out as free men and women, but they even walk out with the blessing from the Egyptians. The final thing that we see here is God's presence. We see God's presence with his people, that he visits them in the midst of their oppression. He comes down to them. He appeared to Moses in this burning bush. He is, he is the one who was bringing them out of Egypt so they might dwell, he might dwell in their midst. Again, God is, in his plan is, is not merely to bring them out, but bring them out that he might be able to come down and dwell with them. That the holy God would dwell amidst his people forever. Now, it doesn't take long, I think, for us to be able to see these truths and how they're connected to the gospel of our Lord and Savior. That in the gospel, we see his plan and his promise given by God from the very beginning. We see his providence in all circumstances to carry out this plan. We see his power revealed. We see his persistence and his patience with us. We see the purpose is not merely that we would be saved from sin, but we would live for Christ. We see that we do not merely have a debt paid in full, but a great and glorious inheritance found in Christ. We see the truth that God seeks to be able to be with his people and dwell in their midst. That he goes to great lengths to do this. As we see that he will with the Israelites. And their response is often our response. Crying and complaining. This is not merely the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament. This is the story of the Christian in the New. That we worship this great and glorious God who is unchanging, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That this God has promised to save us through His providence and His power. He persistently pursues us. That we will be saved for a purpose, having this glorious inheritance to share in His presence. What a glorious truth that is. And as we continue to read, let us not forget that. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have in fact revealed yourself through all of your scripture. That we see even in this passage of your plan and your providence. Lord, you are going to redeem and save your people. Lord, and as we think of the great and glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we see all of these things in the gospel of how you have come to be able to save us. 
that we are the ones who have merely received the gift. Let us not boast in it, but boast in you for the giver of gifts. We pray this in Christ's glorious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.